Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is healthy. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add one single hour to your lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grasses of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, and what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is trouble today. Let's pray together. We stand and we sit before the Lord's table, spread, waiting for our arrival. And we will walk with Jesus this morning through some of his teachings towards his table. And Father, I pray that we will hear our Lord with a view to his table. And we will stand at his table believing his teachings. And that we will be changed by the treasure that he is. So that we fall out of love with money. As we fall more deeply in love with Christ. Lord, this is a miracle. Maybe it happened later for the rich young ruler. Maybe it didn't. But watching it not happen is terrifying to me. Sell what you have, give to the poor, and follow me. You'll have reward in heaven. And he looks at Jesus, the Son of God, in the face and turns away. Oh Christ, forbid that anyone in these rooms, downtown or in Roseville, would look Jesus in the face today and turn away to money. 
I ask this in his great and powerful name. Amen. There are three reasons why I am very uh, happy to speak today about money and giving. And not only today, but next week as well. And these three reasons are reasons why all of you should be happy to be here also. And happy next week to bring friends back to here. Because what Jesus has to say about money and about giving and about treasure is thrilling. It is so revolutionary, so life-changing, so full of joy, so full of potential, radical significance in living. How anybody could walk away from it is beyond me, and yet it happens. And I pray that it not happen here, today, or next week. Let me give you my three reasons. First, to speak pointed, faithful words about money and about possessions is to put yourself in really good company, namely with Jesus. So I find myself, as I take up this topic today and next Sunday, standing very close beside my Lord, watching him do it, wanting to do what he does, wanting to say it the way he says it, mean it the way he means it, be as forceful as he is forceful, as radical as he is radical, and feel like I'm in really good company. And I am. Randy Alcorn, who wrote this little book, The Treasure Principle, there are some of these available downtown as you leave and some available here as you leave. And I told them they're going to sell out this morning because it's so small. Everybody knows you can read a book this big, 84 pages. And it is so powerful, and I will quote from it enough times this morning that everybody's going to want one. And so we'll have lots more next week when they run out this week. But he said... 15% of everything Christ said relates to money and possessions. More than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. Just to give you a flavor. One thing you lack, go sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Blessed are you poor, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you rich, for you have received your consolation. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A person's life does not consist in the possessions that he has. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Sell your possessions, give alms, provide yourselves with purses in heaven. Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. A man found it, covered it up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and said, Truly, I tell you, this widow put in more than them all. God said to the man who built ever bigger barns, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, And the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Come, follow me. That's just a tip of the iceberg. 
from what you read when you read the Gospels. This issue is huge to Jesus. Because our hearts are so linked with our money. Over and over, he is relentless in his call to a radical wartime lifestyle and to hazardous risk-taking in the cause of the kingdom. She put in all that she had. That's what I mean by hazardous risk-taking. Most financial counselors would say imprudent. Well... That's not what Jesus said. One time Jesus referred to tithing. It's no big deal. It's a no-brainer for Jesus. One time he refers to tithing. Everybody know what tithing is? One-tenth of your income to the kingdom purposes of, of God. One time he refers to tithing. He said to the Pharisees, he was not pleased with them, he said... You tithe even your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. That's right. So you should. But you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. In other words, the one time he referred to tithing, Paul never refers to it. He says, of course you do that. Now get busy with the big things. In the Old Testament, it was a bare minimum. And then there were all these free will offerings on top of it. Tithing is not a goal. Tithing is a starting place for the Old Testament. How much more? You say, oh, but should we be under the law of tithing? No, on top of it. Why would anybody blood bought by Jesus go behind the Old Testament is beyond me. And anybody who just gives a tithe, say it, when you're making 40,000, then you move to 80 or 180 and you still give 10. What does that mean about your life? It's unbelievable what Americans use to justify their exorbitant lifestyles by saying, I tithe. Tithing is a middle class way of robbing God for Christians. I'm in good company. That's reason number one. And I could go on and talk about the book of Acts. They were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds as any had need. Or I could talk about Paul. In a severe test of affliction, you Corinthians, their abundance, no, talk about the Macedonians, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty overflowed with a wealth of, of liberality. God loves a cheerful giver. In their extreme poverty and their joy, they overflowed with the wealth of liberality. It is the poor people who give most proportionately in America. Believe me, that is a statistic everybody who studied it knows. The richer you get, the less you give, because it does something to your heart. Oh, how hard it is for the rich to get into the heaven of God. Or we could talk about James, the flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So my argument number one, why I'm so happy to be talking about this, is because Jesus is standing right here saying, say it, John, say it more powerfully, say it the way I say it. Here's my second reason. If we as a church, downtown, here, if we as one church, two campuses, Indeed, if the whole Christian movement could be gripped by the liberty that Jesus died to buy for us, 
If we could be gripped by the radical, simple, wartime, risk-taking, hazardous lifestyle that Jesus lived and taught, it would release an avalanche of mercy and missions and financial means, the likes of which America has never seen. Oh, that we rich Americans would wake up to the truth to whom much is given, for the nations much will be required. Here's some statistics from Barna. Not my Barna. George Barna. The average church donor in America contributed last year, no, year 2000, $649. Now, that's the donors. So if you were assuming a tie, that means the average donor in America makes $6,490 a year. Nearly one quarter of all people who call themselves born again gave no money to the church in 2000. 12% of who call themselves born again tithed, they said. We are in a position in America where we have scarcely scratched the surface of what we could and should be doing for the poor and for the nations and for ministries in our own midst. So my second reason for why I'm happy to be talking about this is, oh, if God might be pleased to take a match and put it to this kindling coming out of my mouth, what it could release for joy and for mission and for mercy and for financial means for all the nations. Oh, what it could do. Here's my third reason for why I'm glad to be talking about this. If you were set free, the way Jesus is going to talk about freedom in this text, you would be the happiest people on planet Earth. And I say that knowing the suffering many of you are walking through. Because giving does not increase suffering. It, how should we say it? It lightens suffering. Selfish people compound their suffering. Generous people lighten their suffering. It doesn't eliminate suffering. We are called through many afflictions to enter into the kingdom. But it was in their severe Test of affliction and poverty that the Macedonians overflowed with a wealth of liberality. And so I say it, you will be the happiest people on planet Earth if you can understand and be gripped by what Jesus says here. Listen to the testimony, Proverbs fourteen twenty one. Happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Oh, my son convicted me of this in a conversation a day or two ago about how we treat the poor in our neighborhood. And I think I'm undergoing a revolution because of that conversation and because of something my wife said last night when she came home from Guinea at 10 o'clock at the airport. And one of the first things she's telling me about the way the missionaries handle money on the field is just kind of let it go, let it go, let it go. I mean, if you're on the mission field and everybody's sending you money, what do you do? Hoard it? Last thing you do, you just let it go, let it go. Ministry, 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 ministry. I'm here to serve. Oh, that we had that mindset here. I'll give you an illustration next week about that, I think. 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction and ruin. I would spare you. 
I want you to be happy. I don't you want I don't want you to plunge yourself into many ruinous temptations and the Bible says those who desire to be rich plunge themselves into destruction and ruin and pierce themselves with many pangs. I would spare you or X 20:35 It is more blessed to give than to receive. A word to young people. Oh, that young people would learn this quickly and older people would learn this before it's too late. That there is... Now mark this. Listen carefully, teenagers, children. There is no correlation between having very many things and being very happy. I'm going to say it again. I say it with absolute biblical authority and experiential authority from many surveys. There is no positive correlation between having many things and being very happy. In fact, when you do the surveys, the people that report themselves to be most depressed are rich people, not poor people. Poor people have stress in their lives. Oh, yes, great stress in their lives. But it doesn't tend to produce the same kind of misery that riches produces in the minds and hearts of rich people whose life is empty because they have things and they're empty inside. Things do not correlate to inner joy. And I would, I would that young people would learn it early. That teenagers and single young people would learn. I stress this because I read these statistics. I won't give them to you. I'll just give you the result. Statistics show that younger people, say under 30, are prone to give at all far less than older people. And it shows that single people are prone to make any contribution less than married people. Now, in Christ, you do not need to be old or married to be smart or to be Christ-like. And so I say to all the younger people and all the single people, show the pollsters wrong at Bethlehem and in all the churches. Show the pollsters wrong. Young people give. Single people give. They don't wait until they get married and have to somehow become enlightened to the fact that there's a world out there that needs their resources. And I know many of you do show the pollsters wrong. So there they are. Those are my three reasons for being happy to talk about this. One, it puts me in good company, namely Jesus. Two, God willing, it might, oh God, do it, release an avalanche of mercy and mission and financial means. And three, if we were to embrace this call of Jesus, we would be the happiest people on planet Earth. Now the text. Got your Bibles open downtown and here, Matthew chapter 6. Verses 19 to 34, we're going to use the same text this week and next week. So if you feel disappointed that I didn't get as far as you hoped, which I certainly won't this morning, then I hope you'll be back next week. In fact, the juiciest parts of the text are saved for next week. 
There are three imperatives in this unit from 19 to 34. And I do believe it is a unit and it's about money. The three imperatives are these. One, verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I'm lumping together the negative imperative in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. I'm lumping the the positive and the negative together in one because they say the same thing. One positive and one negative. So the first thing this text says is lay up treasures in heaven, Bethlehem. Bend every effort to so live your life that you have more treasures in heaven because of the way you've lived. That's imperative number one. Here's number two. Do not be anxious. Three times. Verse 25. Do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31. Do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 34. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. So three times you get this second imperative. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. You ever wrestle with anxiety? Does it ever creep into your life? Jesus knows that it does. That's why he's got at least nine reasons not to be anxious, which is what next week's sermon will talk about. So if you wrestle with that, I hope you'll be back. The third imperative is seek the kingdom of God. Verse 33, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, how do those three imperatives relate to each other? Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness is the large overarching command. Be passionate, Bethlehem. Be passionate about pursuing and enjoying the saving, sanctifying, empowering, liberating reign of God in your life and all of its righteousness. That's what verse 33 says. Be passionate about the big picture of the kingdom among the nations and the kingdom in your life and the kingdom in this church. Oh, that Christ might reign as king. That's what it means. Seek that. Seek his reign in your life. Seek his reign over this church. Seek his reign in Uzbekistan and all the nations. The second commandment here, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, is, I believe, a specific instance of the way you do that. In other words, what does it involve when he says, seek the kingdom and God's righteousness? Seek God's kingdom and righteousness. What does it involve practically? And he would say, well, I've just told you in verses 19 and 20, one thing that it involves, it involves not laying up treasures on earth. That wouldn't be seeking his kingdom. It involves laying up treasures in heaven. Don't try to be rich on earth Try to be rich toward God. Try to be rich in heaven. Try to make God your treasure. Third, don't be anxious. How does that relate? That's the subterranean condition of the heart. It's the negative way of saying trust the promises of God. Don't be anxious. And out of a heart of freedom from anxiety. This is why I said... This is some of the best news you'll ever hear. Jesus' way of talking about money is a liberating way of talking about money. He wants to take out of your life worry and anxiety. So he says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. And once he succeeds by his power and by his grace and by his blood and body to remove anxiety out of our lives, out of that kind of heart... 
you don't start laying up treasures on earth. You start pouring yourself out in risk-taking ventures for the kingdom. So that's the way the three relate to each other. Out of this heart that's free from anxiety, there now flows a non-treasuring up on earth, but a treasuring up in heaven, which is a seeking of the kingdom of God. Everything else in these verses 19 to 34 is support for those three imperatives. In fact, there are at least 12 arguments for those three imperatives And we'll look at those mainly next week. My main concern today is this. What does the simple commandment lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven mean? Now, the best way to get at a meaning like this, I think, is to make it urgent and just ask yourself as you sit there, do I daily Did I yesterday lay up any treasures in heaven? Now, my guess is the response to that in this room is, (laughs) I didn't even think about it. I don't even know what that means. Isn't that something that, that Jesus could make so central to how to live your life? Be about increasing your treasure in heaven and probably in Downtown and here, the average mental response right now is, I don't really know what behavior to point to yesterday that did that, if any. This is why we need to be taught. This is why we need to read and meditate. So let me make an effort to explain what it means. Now, I think verses 19 and 20 are fairly plain. So let's just read them and let them say what they say. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Evidently, there are two ways to live. One way, you live with with a view to accumulating things on earth. So you, you, you get up in the morning, you think, I have to do this and do this and do this, I'll have more. I'll have more. I'll have more. More security, more comfort, more money, more solid investments, more cars, more computers, more house, more furniture, more lake stuff, more everything. More. Just a whole mindset of more or more securely what I have. That's one mindset. It's one way to live. The other way to live appears to be Um, accumulating valuable things in heaven. Living in such a way that, now, because I've done that, there's more waiting in heaven. And because I've done this, there's more waiting in heaven. Because I've done this, there's more waiting in heaven. So the mark of a Christian, Jesus says, is that his eyes are on heaven and he measures his behavior by the effect that it will have on heaven. This is one reason why to be heavenly minded makes you really good use on earth. Because it'll free you from all the same values that the earth people have. What effect will it have on heaven? How will it increase my everlasting joy with God? I think there's something else clear about this. So so far, so clear, and yet a lot of things unclear still, I think. But there's something else clear. Laying up treasures in heaven and laying up treasures on earth are not good bedfellows. 
Somebody might say, well, let's do both. Let's just do both. No reason why you can't do both, somebody might say. Evidently, in Jesus' mind, there is a reason why you can't do both. Because he says, don't do this one, do this one. In fact, isn't the point of verse 24, you can't do both? Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Hmm. Really? A lot of people try. Why can't you? There is something about God and money that tends to mastery. God will be master and money will be master. Either you are mastered by money and you ignore God or make him a bellhop for your business, thinking that you're serving both, when in fact God has become a lackey to your business, or you're mastered by God, and then money becomes a means of ministry and worship. Can't have it any other way. If you are mastered by the one and the other one starts to come in and try to be master, you'll hate it or you'll despise it. Or if you're mastered by the other and the other is coming in, you'll hate him or despise him. You cannot serve God and money. They both tend to mastery. It will be one or the other. That's the way Jesus talks. Much money makes a cruel master. He will defeat God if you cleave to him. Let's get more specific. If Jesus means devote your life to accumulating treasure in heaven, how do you do that? If Jesus means devote your life to increasing your joy in heaven, to increasing the wonder of heaven to your own eyes, to increasing the glory that you behold in heaven, to enabling yourself to have an ever-increasing capacity to enjoy all that heaven has to offer. If he means live your life like that, what do you do? What does this text say to do? Now, I think the context itself gives a pretty clear answer, but I'm going to confirm it, if I can, from a couple of other texts. In my judgment, the context answers that question this way. Uh, Laying up treasures in heaven is the opposite of laying them up on earth. And the opposite of laying them up on earth would, I think, mean that to lay treasures up in heaven means don't lay them up on earth. Don't try to be rich. Don't think, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Don't think bigger, 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 longer, 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 more, more, more. Don't do that. I think that would be the first way you lay up treasure in heaven. Just obey the negative half of the command. Not laying up treasures on earth, but, and here I'm going to go beyond what the text says and then try to confirm it elsewhere, give them away. 
Oh, mark this. There is nothing wrong with making lots of money. What's wrong is keeping lots of money. Make your millions and live simply. Oh, it's dangerous to make millions. It is so dangerous to make millions. Because you think you got to have that kind of car, that kind of house. I just read a testimony of a man last night, built himself a $3 million house when he made his seventh million. And now he's backing up, radically backing up as he's reading this book and getting convicted by God. There is something incredibly dangerous about making lots of money, but I say there's nothing wrong with making lots of money. What's wrong is keeping lots of money, thinking that because you make lots of money, you've got to wear a certain suit with a certain pin and a certain kind of watch and drive a certain kind of car and sit in a certain part of the airplane and make sure you belong to the right clubs, etc., etc., etc. That's what's so evil about making lots of money. It addicts to the emblems of opulence. And there's power in that. Oh, is there power. It's the feeling of I made it. It's the feeling of I control. It's the feeling of I dispose. It's the feeling of savvy, which is so competitive to kingdom values. So make your millions But if you want to lay up treasures in heaven, give them away. Make your day. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, let me try to confirm that from a couple other places in the New Testament. Luke 12. Listen to this. You can go there if you want. Luke 12, 32 to 33. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what's always behind Jesus' statements about giving. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Did you see the connection? Sell your possessions and give to the needy and thus provide treasures in heaven. So I find my guess confirmed. Laying up treasures in heavens means giving money away. Letting your hands be loose. Letting your pad be small. Letting the pipes be copper-coated instead of gold-coated. Letting it flow and Treasures abound with everything that flows through you. It's going to come back to you. Let me give you one other text where you can see that. Luke 14, 13 to 14 goes like this. He's talking to people who had a banquet there and they invited all the wrong people, namely people that could pay them back. And Jesus says, when you give a banquet, invite the people who can't invite you back because they're too poor, lame, blind, and so on. And then he gives them this amazing incentive. You invite people who can't invite you back to dinner. Kind of the the people on the street in the neighborhood or the people who are going to make everybody uncomfortable because they tremble or they don't know how to talk or they have a mental disability. Or You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. 
you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Don't miss this. This is so easy and so good. Namely, if you will give, if you will make your life just one vessel of giving and giving and giving, Jesus comes to you with everything you sacrifice and everything you lose. And he says, you're going to be repaid at the resurrection of the just. One hundredfold in this life with houses and lands and mothers and sisters and brothers and eternal life in the age to come. You can't outgive me. You can't lose. And all of that is an explanation of lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Don't you think? You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just is an explanation of lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You'll be repaid. Lay them up. You'll be repaid. And the way you get there is invite people to dinner who can't pay you back. Spend on people who can't make it a good investment on the earth. So, the meaning is pretty clear. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, not on earth. By being a giving people. At the beginning of the last decade of the 20th century, Bethlehem was moved, we believe, by God to build a house for exaltation in God. It's the sanctuary where you're sitting downtown right now. We walked into that building June 1991, and we paid it off, God helping us, in 1996 after 10 years of fundraising. And we've never been in debt since, not to this very moment. And then, as the decade drew to a close and the new millennium began, that old sanctuary, which is gone now, began to appear to us as a beautiful place for a building, for a vision. We called the vision Education for Exaltation. In other words, we built a building for exaltation because we believe that we were made to worship God and corporately is one of the ways we do that most pleasingly and most energetically, most significantly. And then it landed on us and began to burden us and we just knew that eventually we would have to do this. Namely, we need a building where we can do education and put underneath this exaltation. You just do exaltation for 10, 20, 30 years and it will die. If you don't build a big worldview, a big God view, a big Bible view underneath your children, your teenagers, and your adults, that exaltation will become thinner and thinner and thinner, and we will be then an empty church in 40 years. And so the vision was, let us do education for exaltation, and the whole thing came together with the building that's going up now downtown, and here's the way we decided to pursue it. We said... Oh, this took so many dozens and dozens of meetings and prayer meetings and head knockings against the wall. And we believe God brought us through. We said, let's do it. God helping us without any debt. Let's raise half the cash. It was about 6.5, we estimated at that point. Half the cash up front and let's raise the pledges that would come in by the 
the time we walk in, and when those two equal 6.5 million, we pull the trigger and build the building, and that's exactly what happened. And now the trigger has been pulled, the building is, is being built, and here's the situation. This vision has about uh, $700,000 of new pledges needed to finish the bare-bones building because of certain pledges that have moved away or failed and certain costs increases. So in order to, to get in there debt-free next December, we would need just the bare bones, no basement for the kids finished and no fourth floor for the offices finished, $700,000 in new pledges. And to finish those two things, about another 650000 So, one prayer you could pray would be, if God might be pleased, this year, not over three years, not over five years or ten years, but over 12 months, put in the hearts of about however many people, 3,000 show up here on Sunday morning in the two locations we know that about 45 to 50% have no participation in E4E, Education for Exaltation, at all. If God would put it in the hearts of all of us to stretch what might happen. This is not, let me stress now, this is not the only or the main way to lay up treasures in heaven. Please, don't walk out of here saying, Piper said, the way to lay up treasures in heaven is to build a new building. That is not what I said. This is one little fraction of a way. In fact, if you had to choose between giving to the poor and inviting the crippled to your house for dinner this afternoon and making a pledge to this building, I'd say give to the poor. I just know in America those choices are not necessary.